God who made all things, the second person of the Trinity who humbled himself in the form of a servant and came to earth, living among us, calling us to repentance, taking our sins on himself, dying for us and rising again. What does it mean to be grounded in that person? Each episode, we will unpack what it means to be grounded in Christ, what it means to be a branch in the true vine, what it means to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and how our groundedness in Christ should influence the way we look at faith, worship, politics, marriage, history, scripture, theology, and so much more. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoy the episode, that God speaks through me during our time together, and that this and every episode grounds you further in Jesus Christ. As a 90s kid, I grew up in the middle of a subtle switch and an approach to youth ministry, which arguably uh, was in its historical infancy then. I remember youth group, retreats, conferences, etc., being focused on entertainment, with less, as I remember it at least, focus on quality biblical teaching. Outside of conferences, there was an almost imperceptible desire on the part of many parents to quote-unquote drop kids off to a ministry whether that be children's or youth ministry, to let the professionals, so-called, raise them. Now, I recognize that this isn't the case 100% of the time, and it wasn't back then either. But, looking back on my time growing up in the faith, growing up after high school, that's what I remember. Those who were 10 or so years older than me eventually were led themselves into youth ministry, and I've seen things change. With this shift came a resurgence of a respect for many Reformation and Puritan age techniques in regard to raising families. Yes, families. Not just children. Not even just teens. You know, this is an emphasis found in Scripture. The covenant family is an entity that the Bible speaks to throughout the entirety of it. In fact, the idea of adolescence or youthhood, teenagerness, is historically young. But that's a different uh, discussion for a different time. The hope for today's post is to encourage and challenge each of us, myself included, to be more intentional in raising our families to be God-honoring, God-seeking, and God-proclaiming. Will we be perfect at it? No. But there is grace and forgiveness in Christ. Will we fall? Absolutely yes. But there is mercy at the cross and the continual call to strive after he who perfected our salvation. So, let's take a walk through the biblical call for the first church to be our home. First, let's consider Adam's mission. Be fruitful. Subdue the earth. In the beginning of the family of God, we were commanded to multiply the family through childbearing and subsequently make the whole earth more like the garden temple of Eden but we would be remiss if I didn't emphasize that a family is a father, a mother, and their children, biological or otherwise. This family that was planted by the Lord in the garden expected such building blocks. 
the father providing, leading, and protecting both his family and the world around them. The father loved, protected, and guided the mother so that they could together raise children in the Lord. This mission of Adam and Eve was to build a family which honored and feared the Lord and did so through obedience to his great name. He had commanded something, and they were to follow that command in joyful obedience to his great mercy, love, and grace in their lives. Assumedly, the first children would be introduced to the wondrous creation around them, to the very God who created them, raised in the fear and the joy of the Lord God. This little church would sing praises, offer prayer, and commune with Him, the Lord God. We grasp to fathom what such a family would have been like in Eden, because this is not how things ended. Yet, in God's glorious plan and abundant mercy, neither would the fall of mankind be where it ended. Moving on, let's consider the Decalogue, or God's words. Generations pass, and God's grace is shown in a fresh way, through delivery from slavery in Egypt. He is revealed again to his people, Adam's family, as the self-existent one, Yahweh. His words, therefore, are higher than any other. On Mount Sinai, his word is codified, and is given in a new way. We know of the Ten Commandments, often called the Decalogue or the Ten Words, Obviously, the Old Testament contains much more than just the Ten Commandments when looking at what it means to follow God. And Christ himself sums up the law by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then a second commandment is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. That's Matthew 22:37 37-40. It is on these words of Christ, of God himself, that we can raise our children. Raise them in the admonition and trust of these commands. Raise them to love God, to love Him with everything they have, to show them God's gracious love found throughout Scripture, to help them memorize the Ten Commandments and explain them to your family. Read the Bible, God's Word, to your family daily. Remember, it is helpful for many things, equipping both you and them for every good work. As Paul reminds Timothy, in his second letter, verses 16 through 17 of chapter 3. If our original command from God was to spread out, subduing the world, raising God-fearing families, well, we must start that by raising our family on the necessity and the truthfulness of God's words. Okay, so consider the 12 stones, or God's acts, throughout the Bible. So we're going to skip ahead a generation in the story of the Exodus where we meet Joshua leading this younger generation across the Jordan. They had just wandered in the wilderness to their crossing of the Jordan to enter the promised land, finally. These children, now adults, had seen incredible things. Let's just think about this for a sec. They've seen the plagues of Egypt, the Red Sea parting, the guiding pillars of the Lord, both smoke and fire. Mount Sinai was enveloped by the glory cloud of God. They saw miraculous justice, miraculous victories, and miraculous provision. And now they cross another body of water with more miraculous work of God. Joshua commands that twelve stones be brought up from the very heart of the River Jordan, to be stacked up as a monument to what the Lord had done for his people. God's acts throughout Scripture are incredible. We could spend countless hours diving into each book, 
detailing what he has done. But here, in this moment, God tells them that their children will question this monument of stones. Quoting from Joshua 4, 6-7, we read, So that this will be a sign among you, in the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean to you? You should tell them the water of the Jordan was cut off in front of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. When it crossed the Jordan, the, wa- the Jordan's waters were cut off. Therefore, these stones will always be a memorial to the Israelites. Notice the word is when, not if. Children are inquisitive by nature. Why? Sorry, not just why, but why is a constant question in our household at least. Sorry, distracted by just the thought of the kids asking why. The acts of the Lord should cause pause. They should cause us and our children to ask the why questions, and the what, and the how. The when should be pretty obvious contextually looking at the Bible. Building off the commands and the words of the Lord is a reminder that the home is a place where the acts of God are a present reminder. How are we, as fathers and parents, seeking to guarantee that the wondrous acts of God are proclaimed at home? How are we pointing our children or fathers, how are we pointing our families to seek to be in awe of who he is? The first church, where our families come and see, John 1.46, how amazing he, the Lord, is. It should be right there in the home. Okay, so let's go a little further. Let's consider the Psalms and the Proverbs, or just God's wisdom. The people of God in the Old Testament were given a unique view of God, in that he worked directly while purposefully proclaiming that action to his people. His actions were declared and pointed to, yet they were always a foreshadow to this true magnum opus in the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The Psalms and the Proverbs, along with the other wisdom literature, provide direct statements that we can glean from when raising our children in the way they should go, so that when they are old they will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6 The Psalms are important for numerous reasons, but for consideration of the home as the first church, I want us all to remember just how flawed we are. How often we don't have the right word for a situation or our words that do come, the ones that come out, just do more harm than we intended. The Psalms are full of amazing reminders of who the Lord God is, his might, his compassion, his justice and mercy, his victory, his presence, and his transcendence. We can lead our family through the Psalms daily and always leave with more to learn. The Psalms are often our very best prayers to God when we can't think of the words ourselves. So, for these, and many other reasons, God's wisdom in the Psalms are a necessary part of the first church. The Proverbs, then, they complement the beauty and expressivity of the Psalms by adding a practicality and divine truths in a dark, naturalistic or materialistic world. We should be apt to seek, to train, correct, rebuke, and raise up our kids in the divine excuse me, in the divine Proverbs, not the temporal ones the world has. Providentially, the Lord divided the book of Proverbs into 30 chapters, giving us a monthly template with which we can chew on his truthful sayings each month, seeking to grow and learn.
constantly. May we remember that as we lead our families in the truth of Scripture daily. We have divinely inspired wisdom literature we can turn to that doesn't detract from the glorious beauty of our Savior, but it is Him. Alright, now let's consider the New Covenant. You know, be fruitful and spread the gospel. When we think about the timeline of the people of God, beginning in the Garden of Eden and ending with the spread of the gospel in Acts, we see similar reflections. Where Adam failed as a protector and a provider, Christ fulfills the need perfectly. Where Abraham fails to proclaim the truth and the goodness of the Lord among the world, Christ's church, empowered by the Spirit of God, boldly goes forward into the world, drawing God's sheep to him. If the home is to be the first church for our family, the gospel must be preeminent. Where God's commands, God's words, God's acts, and God's wisdom combine is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. We see all the former rightly through the light of the world, as depicted in the Gospels, and spread out through the acts of the spirit-indwelled apostle. Fathers and mothers, do not focus on the practicality of the former things while neglecting the torn veil, which is Christ's flesh, Hebrews 10.20, which comes from the saving knowledge of Christ. If we give our family spiritual milk and water by focusing on the practical, the temporally replicable, or these actions of the former sections, we may very well damn them for all eternity because we forgot where the fullness of these things lies, in Christ. While on this side of eternity, we, the parents, and specifically the fathers, are responsible for being little preachers in our homes, intentionally, passionately, daily proclaiming Christ and Him crucified to ensure that our children hear that truth and respond to it. Lastly, let's consider eternity. One family of God, many faces. Since eternity is something we cannot truly or fully comprehend, I point us to the new heavens and the new Jerusalem, which will embody the coming age of consummation. It is here that we embrace our full and true family, the family of God, the family of the bride of Christ. It is this family, this home, which we are longing for, with each breath and each attempt of home worship now. As the hymn goes, I am a poor wayfaring stranger, traveling through this world of woe, but there is no sickness, toil, or danger in that bright land to which I go. As we point our families to Christ, may we be ever mindful that ultimately He is victorious. The cross was not the end, but only the beginning of the end of time. As we seek to make our homes our family's first church, let us not forget that Christ is the true head, the one who bought us for a price, and the one to whom we owe joyful obedience and allegiance. So where do we go from here? Well, I hope to leave this last little bit to be short, because I don't claim to have all the answers. I wouldn't dare be so pompous. Each of us has a different family, different struggles therein, but the Lord knows. First, I want you to remember that you cannot lead your family if you yourself are not led by Christ. By this I mean, basically, the argument I make in my Life Grounded in Christ series that I 
recorded and wrote earlier. Make sure you are breathing in God's Word through daily Bible reading and breathing out God's Word daily by prayer. I argue you really need to be in the community with, with believers in a local, physical, church setting to really tie it all together. Second, we need to rekindle what the Puritans did, family worship. By this, I mean daily, intentional, and focused time as a family with God. This family worship can be reflective of your own family, like in terms of content or time allotted for it. But generally, family worship means prayer, a reading of scripture, explanation of that scripture, and singing of praises. It can be any order of those things, and for whatever duration seems best to fit your family. I don't expect a family of four under four years old to sit for ten minutes, even five minutes, honestly, and listen to you explain a passage. But I do mean to be as consistent as possible as you seek to draw your family closer and closer to Christ. Think of home as the first church in terms of a triangle. You are at one base and your family is at the other. As you both grow closer to Christ at the point, you grow closer as a family as well. This is the goal of family worship. This is God's hope for his people. By uh, next week, and I hope to put this here on the podcast as well, I hope to have a decently exhaustive list of books and guides and people and podcasts and music and all that sort of stuff that you can look to as something to kind of focus yourself or to have good, solid things to put in place of other things like music or books or uh, podcasts or whatnot. But in the meantime, think about this and feel free to comment on social media or shoot me an email. What have you done that you found to be helpful when it comes to family worship or this idea of having the family's first church be our home? Let me know. And as always, I'm thankful for each and every one of you listening. If you enjoyed this, you know, please subscribe to my Substack, share this episode, just help to proclaim God's word. And if you can use me to do that, I will be eternally grateful. But for now, have a great day and God bless. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Grounded. I pray that in this short time, God has used me to encourage and convict you, to help you as the Spirit grounds each of us more and more into the person of Jesus Christ. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. Grounded also has an accompanying Instagram account and a Substack if you're interested in getting more content or just getting it in a different way. As always, have a blessed day and I look forward to talking again soon.